0: Brandon. Good morning, and I will keep uh, going with what Sarah had already started. He is risen. Excellent. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm an elder here at Resonate. And I'm glad you're with us this morning uh, for a momentous day that we get to celebrate together. Uh, I will uh, open us in prayer and we'll dive right into our text, but I also want to um, highlight that today uh, we are going to hone in on what the resurrection really means. Uh, we have been in a series where we have talked about uh, some of the meaning of, of Good Friday and the cross. We've talked about um, um, even the Last Supper and some of the ways that that plays out. Uh, and so some of the conversations around sin and death and atonement and all, all the sort of big, sometimes churchy words, um, we'll, we'll cover lightly, but I really want to focus on um, what Easter and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go. But let me pray for us, and we'll dive in. God, I am thankful uh, for this morning. <clears throat> what, a, what a joyous day. But I also understand that there's many who walk in these doors who um, may be struggling with joy. The past day, the past week, the past month, year. It's just a season where the, the thought of, of resurrection and new life feels unattainable. A distant. But God, there's good news in you, that you are the God of mercy, you are the God who can make beauty out of ashes, who can make all things new, and so, God, may today be a morning of hope, even when there's not an answer, that you are the living hope. And so, God, we, I pray that this time, people would leave in a way that um, tastes and see that you are good i pray all to in your name. Amen. We'll see how I get through it this time. I have tissues up here this time around. Uh, the last service uh, was a little harder, but at the same time, going through it the second time, uh, usually uh, a little simpler. I want to start with a, a friend of mine. Um, he, he wrote a book, and w- in the opening of the book, he has um, he speaks about this vision that he had, this sort of um, dream that he had, and it's this picture of a picture of an artist who's painting a masterpiece. And I'll, I'll read it, so don't get too bored that I'm looking down, but I'll read it. With lavish brushstrokes and bold strikes, he threw splashes of rich, beautiful color, pouring himself into his painting with passion on a large wall-sized canvas bordered by an ornate gold frame. And when the masterpiece was complete, he stood back and gazed with joy upon the wonder his hands had made, as if to say, it is good. Something strange, however, happened next. A small dark spot appeared in the center of the painting. I thought, what is that? And the artist watched as the mold-like decay began to spread like a crack in the windshield that starts at at a point, but gradually expands its fissures and fractures into the hole. The invasive intruder began to stretch its thin, straggly arms, creeping its corruption throughout the canvas. The masterpiece was threatened with destruction. What will the artist do? I wondered. And what happened next was the strangest, most bizarre thing I could have experienced. The artist lifted his leg, extended it forward, and stepped into the painting. First his leg entered the canvas, then his torso, and finally his head. Then, with a whoosh, The integration was complete. The artist stood within the work his hands had made, at the center of the masterpiece. That's weird, I thought. But even stranger was what happened next. The moldy rot began to attack the artist. The great painter had positioned himself in such a way that the central point of invasion was right over his heart. As the tentacles retreated from the cornered edges, they sank into the artist himself, blow by blow. The creator received the corruption at the core of the masterpiece until finally, with a whoomph, it was gone. The masterpiece was restored. The artist had absorbed the destructive power until it was extinguished. To my surprise, however, the great painter didn't step back out of the painting. Having united his life with the canvas, he remained permanently at the center of the restored masterpiece. And in a way, however, restored doesn't seem like the right word, because the work was now even more glorious with his present insi- presence inside. He brought radiance and beauty such that the painting seemed to glow with his life. There was a sense that this was the way it was always intended to be. The artist at the center of the painting And this was a true masterpiece. Now this vision becomes this kind of beautiful metaphor, I would argue, for the gospel. A story of what Passion Week and Easter, in a lot of ways, is really all about. And I want this morning for us to look at that Sunday, 2,000 years ago, and what Jesus getting out of the grave really does mean for us. The work of God restoring his masterpiece. But we have to start at the beginning to understand the story just like you would start at the beginning of the artist's story. And how does it begin? With the work of an artist, with the work of a creator who takes the chaos and forms it, who takes the void and fills it. He creates the heavens and the earth And then God does this tremendous work over five days of forming the earth and the sky and the lights and all of this and then calling all those things good. And on the sixth day, puts a capstone in some ways on his creation with these image bearers in humanity. And he calls it very good. The first thing we find out about the world that we inhabit, the first statement about it, is that it is very good. And on the seventh day, he rested. We end up in this very good, created world. By chapter two, we start seeing that, that we are present in this world and where, where God himself is this king. And he's actually appointed humanity to sort of rule in his place in some ways, like, like viceroys representing the king. And the earth was the specific domain that humanity had. And it was unique, this place where heaven and earth kind of co-present together. And it was represented by this garden inhabited by God and a man and a woman. That's how it starts. And it's fascinating to look at the gospel writers and we'll look at John a bit today, but how does the book of John, the gospel of John start? Very similarly. It starts even with the same words in the beginning. Now he'll go on to use some metaphor language around the word, For his people, but at the same time, John is intentionally hearkening back to creation itself. He will spend pages of his gospel and his letters talking about light and darkness and the distinction there, all of the sort of storytellings. And if we even hone in on Passion Week itself, John John has some nuances to, to how he tells the story. But Passion Week itself, we should even note, If you're on a Jewish calendar, the first day of the week is Sunday. And so on the sixth day of the week, on Friday, the day that God normally would have, uh, in in the story, been the day of his creation of humanity, what happened on Passion Week is the death of the truest human, and Jesus. Seventh day of the week, on Saturday, the day that God would rest, what happens? Jesus lays in a tomb. It's the end of the week. It's the end of a creation timeline. The finale of this moment in time is Saturday. Sunday represents a new day, a new creation. And if you don't think that John might be after that, what do we even find in John's storytelling that we don't find in the other gospel writers? Uh, We can even look there in John 20 because John will speak of a dark morning and then speak of being suddenly all these folks that are able to see when at first they were blinded. And he encounters, uh, uh, Jesus encounters this woman in the garden, Mary. And it says this, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. So what is this place even identified as? It's a garden. You wouldn't have a gardener without it being a garden. And we're left with this image of a garden and one man talking to one woman. And not only that, but even in the first garden, Adam is the one who declares Eve's name. Eve, that's that's your name. And Jesus looks at Mary in the garden and goes, Mary, and she immediately recognizes who he is. You have all of this beautiful imagery that I think John is metaphorically trying to extract for us, for us to see Easter as a day where the new creation is being brought to this world. There's something new. There's something different. And I worry sometimes that for many of us, Passion Week becomes so focused on what happened on Friday and our understanding of the gospel itself becomes so focused on what happened on Friday that we miss the grandioseness of the story that God is actually telling. And maybe we've been handed a a broken story, an incomplete story, maybe a a myopic version of the gospel, and there's a lot of ways that this could have happened. Perhaps we've heard the bridge analogy, right? It's used in popular tracks of thousands of evangelism conversations through the decades. And in the analogy, the picture is God and humanity are separated by sin, and, and there's like this Grand Canyon chasm between God and us. And fortunately, Jesus went to the cross to build this bridge, and now uh, we can get to the other side where God is again. But I don't know if you think in three dimensions, but travelers will run into uh, some problems as they get to this bridge. Um, In case you didn't think about that, there's really no way to get through the cross without a ladder. And I'm being a bit facetious, but in some ways, this picture also represents, uh, misrepresents a lot. It tells a story as if we're the ones that are just always trying to get to God, and God's sort of moved away from us. That He's backed away, our desire is to leap across, and we're just waiting for some bridge to be built. We're pursuing God, but God seems to be running away and further and distant, but the story of God is the opposite of that. The story of a God who pursues. A story of God who works to bring heaven back to earth. And too often, the reality has been reduced down to something like this as well. Where we are here, we're on earth, I actually saw this on the back of a truck the other day, like an 18-wheeling. And we're here on earth, and at some point, there's a decision to be made with the life you have, and they'll slap on some verse, like there's only one name under heaven by which you would be saved, and it's the classic story. We all live our individual lives. We're all sinners. Judgment is coming. Various Christian groups will define what judgment is, whether it's believing the right things, doing the right things, belonging to the right church, and at some point, you get assigned heaven or you get assigned hell. Heaven's floating in clouds with harps and halos and hell's Satan in torment. And judgment becomes this moment where it's like a, a YouTube channel of everything you should have done in your life and everything you shouldn't have done in your life. Everything that, that was played out of good and bad. And you better have believed to receive, or all the other taglines, believe and receive, turn or burn, get right or get left. The difficulty is that this is not quite the full story of the Bible. And too often, a lot of these stories are too reductionistic of what exactly God is doing. And there's certain elements of truth. Don't hear me dismiss these things. they are tools, I understand that. And there's parts of these things that, that carry with it some, some portion of the gospel or some of the truth. But the Bible is so much grander than that. And what Easter represents is so much bigger than that. And let's be clear that the story of the Bible is way more about heaven and earth than it is about heaven and hell. That the words actually heaven and hell never appear in the same sentence together in all of Scripture. And there's a place for conversations around hell and things like that, but at the same time, I want us to highlight I think what Scripture emphasizes to its greatest, that the story begins with heaven and earth, and this picture of this overlapping place in Eden. God walking with his people in his creation, and it's beautiful and it's intimate. In some ways, earth itself is this giant temple of God, as if Eden is the holy of holies, the place where God and humanity come together in its perfection. That God manifestly dwells in that place and walks with his people. But sin does enter into the equation in what we often call the fall. And creation itself becomes enslaved by powers and principalities. Earth gets affected by these things. There's rebellion. And that's much more than saying, hey, I lust after these things. Or hey, I lied about these things. It's so much greater than that. It's rebellion against God's good design and good plan for humanity. And the very task that we were given in the garden in saying, no, we are going to go do our own way. And there's rupture. And God's still presented as omnipresent, but there suddenly becomes talk through the Old Testament about heaven being sort of God's space. Heaven is the definition of where God lives, where God rules, and earth becoming, in some ways, human space. Instead of earth being where God's will is done and played out through the image bearers, through this humanity that he's created, it becomes where their will is done instead of God's. And this intimacy with God becomes broken. And throughout the story, there's always moments, moments of overlap. They they get tasked to build this tabernacle, this moment where sort of this, this place where heaven and earth meet again. They like get tasked to be this kingdom and at times live out what it looks like for heaven to really live on earth, the will of God and his reign on earth. But it's always with some tension and it always seems to go awry in some ways. Because the sin of, and death, the powers of chaos are unleashed onto the world. That's what Genesis 4 through 11 will even tell us as we get through the stories of Noah and we get through the stories of the Tower of Babel, the, the ripples of that chaos leading to this great moment where the human project tries to make a name on their own. And then God will pick a people to work through these these chosen agents. But then the Old Testament sort of ends because there's a hanging question throughout all of it. How is God actually going to rescue humanity, restore heaven and earth? Now that we know that his chosen agents are equally a part of the problem and not the solution. And that's where Jesus enters in. And he comes in, and the beauty of what Jesus proclaims is it should be highlighted. Like Matthew and Mark, the opening lines of Jesus' words are important. They say, repent, for the kingdom of God is near, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which is Matthew just not writing Yahweh because he's a good Jew and writes heaven instead of God. But in Matthew's mind, they're the same thing. And all they're saying and what Jesus is declaring is that the kingdom is close to you, it's near. And that's not a statement about time, but more about space. The heavens are drawing near to you as if his very presence is the kingdom coming near to these people. And that place where God's will is done, where heaven, where perfect obedience exists is now in Jesus. If you want to know what it looks like for heaven to be on earth, Jesus is that. The true way to be human in God's good design is found in Jesus. Jesus came to show us that. We have three years of recorded ministry of him living out what it means like to be a real, true human, obedient to all that God had tasked him with. And then the final week came. And knowing we were dead, stuck in this ongoing cycle of sin and brokenness, that our humanity was too distorted, we could never bring heaven to earth, Jesus does open the door through death as we sing, trampling over death by death, dealing with sin. And that's good news. And we've talked about that on Good Friday. We talked about that when we covered communion. We've talked about this as part of the series multiple times. But but it doesn't end there. The crucifixion is the condemnation, yes, of the old way, the old creation, the, the cycle of sin and brokenness. And the resurrection of Jesus is the launch of the new creation project. There's been a reboot in the past with Noah, and it didn't really work out. And Jesus comes. Where the failure of Adam, the failure of Noah, the failure of Abraham, Moses, David, all of those God had called before, that age is done away with. And the wiping out the old ways and the evil and the resurrection is the first bit of the new creation bursting into the world. The hope of the universe is that, that God will actually make all things new. And Paul draws our attention there. He starts speaking of us in that way. When he's talking about the resurrection in in 1 Corinthians 15, he starts speaking about it. And and he's sort of like, this is really what it's all about. Like if Jesus didn't get up out of the grave, then our preaching is in vain. That's that's ultimately what he says. If there's not something new at hand, if there's not ultimate victory, if, if if Jesus doesn't move us into a new phase in life, what's the point of all this? It's in vain. But he did come up out of the grave. And it sets a prototype for us. Paul will go on a few verses later and say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits for those who have fallen asleep. And all the metaphor there with firstfruits is all is that what Christ did in experience, we will all get to experience as well. And there is a uniqueness to his resurrection. It's fascinating if you look at all the conversations that Jesus had with people after his resurrection, before the ascension? Like, it's like a puzzle. Sometimes they recognize him, sometimes they don't recognize him at all. Sometimes it even says that the, the, the disciples like wanted to ask who he was, but they, they knew it was him, but they, they were afraid to ask the question. There was always this tension around seeing him. Because in Jesus, you, you have a resurrection, this puzzle that is both body and spirit. He has this new immortal body, this unique body, an internal spirit, and they struggle to recognize it. And that's the trajectory for all of us. I think too often we have this disembodied idea of what heaven is like, that we're going to go float off in spirit and, and hang out in the clouds. And hear me, that is way more Plato and Gnostic than it is the Bible itself. Because what the Bible presents is a bodily resurrection of a bodily Jesus, ushering in a change to the physical world. There's a trajectory for us—not to be whisked away forever, but we'll have some form of a moral body. And don't ask me what they're going to look like. The Bible doesn't give us those details. But at some point, it's going to be different than what you got right now. But it'll be physical. It'll be real. It'll be it'll be on Earth. And at some point, heaven and earth itself will be united in its fullness. That's why Paul will identify us as part of new creation. Second Corinthians 5, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. That was like the old way of things. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. It's part of the, the new thing that God is doing. The old has passed away and the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry, the work of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, encouraging to us, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So, so God is doing a work of reconciliation. He's, he's doing it. He's done that for some of us. Therefore, we are ambassadors. We are the ones who represent, who go out as God's representatives, making an appeal through us. And God says, and Paul says he implores you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled. And he includes the, 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 the pathway that got us there, that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And we've talked about that substitute multiple times recently. But what Paul's after is saying, we don't think of people the same way that we used to. We don't think of even this world, this created world the same way that we used to. We don't regard people in that sort of relationship of the old. God is doing this amazing work of reconciling this world, of making new creations, and that is how we need to see the world because we know the trajectory. Like we know how the end of the story works out. And we actually see this reunification of heaven and earth in what is ultimately called a new heaven, a new earth. Revelation 21, And when I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Which a little nerdy theological side note. If Jesus is that first bit of, of the new creation in the garden, Mary represents the, the she of the church, the bride of the church in that moment. So anybody that says the Bible doesn't give dignity to women, they're missing out of what the Bible actually does for women and and raises their status and purpose. that's, That's another sermon. And so, but this picture that's hinted at in the garden gets fulfilled in the city a reunification of heaven and earth to the point where we don't need sun. We don't even need the seas. It's, it's fulfilling the original task and role of, of Adam. That's what God's going to do in the long run. In the new heaven and new earth, uh, don't think of it in the sense that it's like um, brand new. Like it's never existed before. It's young. It's new in time. That's not the word. There's another word for that in Greek. Um, but in, in the Greek here, it says kinos. As if it's something that's existed before, but it's a new quality to it. It's almost like earth 2.0. That's what God is doing. He's making, he isn't making all new things, but he's making all things new. And that's an important distinction. Because it starts changing everything about how we view this world. The resurrection should change everything how, about how we live, not just the statement around how it happens when we die. Because if you believe that this world's gonna be completely destroyed in the end, and we're just going to spend eternity off disembodied somewhere in heaven then you may not be motivated necessarily to do much good here, to spread the kingdom here. But if you believe God and right now is in the business of recreating the world and making all things new, he's doing that work now of bringing his kingdom here to earth in tangible ways. That's why we pray over and over and over. Thy kingdom come, as earth as it would be in heaven, as it is in heaven. That's a different story of how now to live. As N.T. Wright puts it, the resurrection has always gone from a strong view of God's justice and of God as a creator. Those twin beliefs give rise not to a meek acquiescence to injustice in the world, but to a robust determination to oppose it. English evangelicals gave up believing in the urgent imperative to improve society, such as we find in Wilberforce in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. They gave up on that about the same time that they gave up believing robustly in resurrection and settled for a disembodied heaven instead. But if we really get what God is accomplishing in this resurrection, what God is giving a foretaste of, it should change everything. We start filtering our questions, not about what gets us into heaven, but what is like the kingdom of God here. Jesus himself becomes this great parameter in places like like the Sermon of the Mount, for us to filter through. In the new creation, we are no longer objectifying each other. We're no longer holding each other in contempt. We're no longer breaking oaths like our word is integrity and power. We're no longer living different between our private life and our public life. So that my life is anticipating what is already taking place. That is what we're invited into. God is making you new. God is making me new. And God is doing a work to bring his kingdom here on earth. So the reason I care about sin and holiness, is not because I'm worried that there's a fickle God that's going to be mad at me in any moment. But I am convinced, having lived my own life and having made choices like Adam, where I, I choose what I think is best and what I think is going to make sense and whatever that is, I am convinced now, having done that, that following Jesus is truly the best way to be human. Rightly related to the creator of the universe, rightly related to each other, that is flourishing in this life. And then Jesus invites you into that. There's hope in Christ's resurrection. It's a preview of things to come, but may we press forward, not as glum fatalist, unmotivated to spread the kingdom here, but as passionate followers of Christ. Kingdom people who are joyful about the important work of this new creation. But I want to draw us back to the garden where Jesus is a gardener. And we should remember that Adam's first vocation in some ways was a gardener. And yes, it's metaphoric. And yes, he had some priestly duties and all this kind of great rich theological things, but it's described like a garden. Go fill the earth, do it. You are to go out and take the uncultivated parts of the world and cultivate them like God. But Jesus is now a gardener, but he's the gardener of a resurrection, cultivating new life in others. The first Adam was a gardener who failed at his task and the world became a wasteland of war and sin and brokenness and hatred and violence and judgmentalism and everything else. But the second Adam will succeed in the task. Christ will restore because Jesus is a gardener, a gardener cultivating resurrection life and those who come to him. The metaphor of gardener or physician are, are beautiful and faithfully depict, I would argue, what salvation is really about. A gardener's work is earthly and intimate. Gardeners have their hands in the, in the humus of, of earth. Even humans come from the humus, the, 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 the dirt of it. Gardeners handle living things with living hands and Jesus is not afraid to get his hands dirty in the humus of humanity. That Jesus is a gardener and with a good heart and a green thumb should change our perspective on life. I promise you that life is not so messed up that Jesus can't nurture you into a flourishing state. He's a good gardener. That is good news. And it requires faith to trust the gardener and to stay in the garden that Jesus will grow your life out of the husk of the old life. But we do need to stay in the garden. And Yes, I know it's easy to be depressed around like, like church garbage and everything else and all sorts of stuff that I know are legit baggage that a lot of you have. I get it. Just remember, beautiful gardens have compost in them too. But because... Jesus is a good gardener, tending to your soul. It should really change your perspective on life. So when the stuff of life, you know the expression, when stuff happens, don't despair. And Jesus is able to use it as fertilizer to help you grow. I believe Paul said something about God causing all things to work together for our good. And when those times the gardener pulls out his shears and it feels like, oh no, It's pruning time. It's going to be painful. It's going to feel like a loss. No one likes to be cut back, but the gracious intention of a good gardener as part of pruning is to prepare you to flourish. Jesus even says, every branch of mine that bears fruit is pruned, that it may bear more fruit. So take heart. If you're in the gardener, the gardener is there with you. Jesus has entered our creation just like that artist entered the the masterpiece but stayed there with us. Jesus is there with you. You may not always recognize him like Mary in the garden, but he is there. He calls you by name. His desire is that you would flourish as part of his new creation. Believe in the gardener for he is risen. I want us to listen to a, a song um, it's by Andrew Peterson. If you don't know Andrew Peterson, um, I, I couldn't talk highly enough about him. He's probably one of the best Christian lyricists that we know right now. Um, he's written amazing Christmas CDs and all this stuff, but he has actually two CDs that are solely devoted to the resurrection. Um, and one of the songs that's super famous off there, it's the, um, uh, oh, the one with the question. Why don't I forget it? He does, like, does, does the Father really love us? He does, that, that song. Um, and so I, I want us to, to listen uh, to this song. And um, I, when I was preparing this message, I, I'm glad I prepared by myself because I was quite weepy quite often, but even listening uh, to Peterson does that to me very often too. Um, but there's, there's a poignancy about all things being made new that I think is expressed uh, poetically in the song and I, I want to kind of wrap up with the song so here here we go
1: Stories are true, but Jesus makes all things new.
0: Thanks, Bianca. Um, There's always two invitations by Jesus to, to come and see, to go and do, and uh, I don't know where some of you are this morning, and uh, it may feel like uh, the idea of anything feeling new any feeling restored, any idea of flourishing, any idea of life so distant. But the invitation is there. Come and see. Come see what our Lord has done. He's doing a work to make all things new, and that could be yours if you don't know it already. And if you do know it already, the instruction then is to go live it out. Go live out all that Jesus commanded us. Go make disciples. Tell the world about the God who makes all things new. That heaven and earth are meeting together again. And we can have a foretaste now of what that will be like in its fullness. That's why we care about all the broken things in this world. Because we're not just punching people's tickets to heaven by sharing the gospel, we are living out the truth. So every injustice, every broken area, every piece of sin, we, we care about now. This isn't some rock that's just gonna go away and who cares? He's invited us in. To and this will sound cheesy and very Stephen Curtis Chapman and me, but he's invited us into the greatest adventure, right? The greatest adventure story of a king who is willing to die to bring back his subjects and now is establishing his kingdom here on earth and invites us into that establishment.
1: That's good news.